0: That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon and welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. Coming up, another interview from the archives. But first, I'm going to go through a few emails that have come in and also look briefly at a couple of bits of snooker news. It's technically my holiday, but, you know, I just like to... I just like to give and give. Um, Of course, for the top players at the moment, there's no snooker on. uh, But for both Judd Trump and Mark Selby, well, they're going in a different direction, different Q Sports events, so they're going to be taking part in. Selby's partner in Gareth Potts, aptly named. uh, He's his brother-in-law in in the Ultimate Pool Pairs Cup. It's an eight-ball event. Of course, Selby, he's a former eight-ball world champion. And Trump, very excitingly, will be heading to New Jersey next week to take part in the US Open, a huge nine-ball event promoted by Matchroom, which could have been live on Sky Sports in the UK. Now, uh, this is a fantastic coup for Matchroom and very interesting, I think, to see how Judd gets on. It's a chance for him to potentially make a name for himself in a different sport and hopefully introduce himself to American audiences. Snooker is popular in pockets, all puns intended, of the US, but it's never taken off there like it did in, for for instance, Canada, in North America. So best of luck to them both. Uh, Players have said about Trump he's often been compared to a bit of a pool player in the way he plays snooker? Well, we'll see, because you know, they seem, obviously they are related, they seem similar, but it's a different game. I'll be interested to see how he gets on. I suspect he might do quite well, but uh, we will see. In slightly less savoury news, Peter Lyons is under official investigation after a complaint was lodged against him by his opponent in the recent Northern Ireland Open qualifiers, that was Xiao Gu Dong. Lyons is accused of threatening and abusive behaviour after the match. Now, I wasn't there, so I can't comment on what happened or didn't happen. I've worked several times with Peter. I like him a lot. He's a pure snooker man. He just loves it. But of course, anyone can lose their temper. And if he's done that, then he has to face the consequences of his actions. And let's be clear, no player should be threatened by an opponent. Of course, the wrinkle in all this is that Peter Lyons is a WPBSA board member. And that makes it really important that this investigation and any subsequent disciplinary action is shown to be as transparent as possible. Remember just a few weeks ago when WST reported Jeremy O'Neill had withdrawn from the British Open, when he'd in fact been suspended? Well, we can't have any more of of that. You you know, they've got to be clear, they've got to tell us what's happened. So I hope the findings are reported as what they are, which is facts, when the investigation is concluded. And also, I think it'd be useful to know who's done the investigation, because as I say, one of the parties is, for now anyway, a board member. We'll see in time. Anyway, before I get to the emails, I just want to mention two of the podcasts that have had some interesting content and talking points recently. Talking Balls podcast had a two-part special with Neil Robertson. Now, Neil has been on this podcast as well, and if, you've, if you heard that interview, you'll know what an engaging person he is to talk to, as well as being, of course, a great player. He's one of the sport's good guys, and my respect for him is matched only by the sheer extent of my disagreement with him over his belief that the World Championship format should be reduced. You can listen to his comments on this on the Talking Balls podcast or read them in Phil Haig's story in the Metro Online where he lays out all the quotes. I have to say I thought Neil Robertson's reasoning was bizarre because it boils down to this. I struggle in this format, therefore the format should change. Well, no, Neil, you have to change. You have to find a way of coping, of not retreating into your shell, of playing the same brilliant free-flowing snooker that you always seem to produce in the early rounds. He always goes into the tournament insisting he's going to be positive and then usually around the quarter-final stage, it seems to happen every year, he changes the way he plays. And he, he, to be fair to him, he acknowledges this in the story. He says, yes, I do have to change. But that doesn't mean that the whole format of the event should change. To argue that it should be shortened because it would give you personally a better chance is a a little, well, let's be honest, one-eyed to say the least. And what you always get with these things, and Trump did it as well in his interview before the Crucible, is players sort of claiming to know what other people think. So, the statement that nobody watches a best of 35. Well, actually, a lot of people do watch it. A lot of people will watch every ball of the World Championship final. Here's a clue, okay? The World Championship is the longest annual sporting event broadcast by the BBC, and national broadcaster. They've shown 17 days of it every year for over 40 years. Why? Because audiences absolutely do engage with it. They don't have to watch every ball. That's never been a requirement. But the slow-burning drama is what people love and to all the people who want to mess around, dumb down and just change things for the sake of it or for their own personal gain and we get this every year, we get it with the semi-finals there they're too long, this is too long, this should change, that should change I say this to you all, okay careful what you wish for the minute you start tinkering with something that is proven to work the whole house of cards could come crashing down if the world championship is too long maybe the masters is too, maybe the UK is too maybe the broadcasters will just show less of it full stop I remember a top player saying to me a few years ago that the World Championship format should remain as it is because it means every player of the television age will have faced the same test. And I've repeated this several times since because I thought it made total sense. That player was Neil Robertson. Okay, That's what he thought then. Obviously he's changed his mind since because he's had some disappointments there. I still think he could win it again. And the rewards are there for winning it. We know they are. The rewards are financial but also snook at immortality if you win the World Championship you're on that roll of honour forever and by the way, we must remember this Neil Robertson has won it Neil Robertson's been world champion it was a fantastic achievement coming from Australia, all the sacrifices he had to make we don't know if he'll win it again it's a surprise to some that he hasn't I would still absolutely back him to win it again but even if he doesn't, he's on that role of honour and he's done it, as he said under the same format as everyone else has done it but my final word okay, I'll, leave it, I'll leave it at this Okay, fine. Cut the frames at the World Championship, but cut the prize money as well. After all, they're going to be doing less work. So cut the frames in half, but cut the prize money in half as well. Surely none of the players who want to dilute Ag's sports greatest event could possibly have a problem with that. Anyway, (laughs) the other podcast I wanted to mention is Talking Snooker with Nick Metcalf and Phil Haig. Last week they had Hector Nunz on, a journalist who's been at the forefront of most big stories for the uh, past two decades. And here's the thing about it, okay? Their chat about snooker in the media, it lasted for more than two hours, but for me, they're actually only just scratching the surface. It could have gone on a lot longer. I know I'm biased because I work in the media, but it's such an important area for discussion, I think, because snooker owes its existence as a thriving professional sport to the media. Television, principally, but all the other outlets, too, that keep the flames burning during and outside of tournaments. So it was a very interesting chat and some excellent points made, and to tie the two together, Regardless of what you think of Neil Robertson's comments, and I've made my, my position pretty clear, at least he made himself available to chat and was open and honest. You know, you're not going to get every, what is he, world number four in a major sport going on a podcast like that. Or if you try to get hold of them, you have to go through agents and all sorts of people. Neil is a very open guy and he proved it by spending so much time chatting. And most snooker players are like this. We're very fortunate for that. As Hector and the guy said on the podcast, it's made our jobs a lot easier to deal with people who are actively willing to engage, not acting the star and giving honest opinions. So whether you agree or disagree with Neil's opinions on the Crucible, at least he came out and actually had a chat and that in itself is doing good work promoting our sport. So to the emails, Ray Morgan writes, I recently listened to the podcast repeat of the Mark Williams interview. This was last week, of course. I was surprised at the mention he made of his father taking him down the pit when he was a young boy had been cut from the interview. This must have played a big part in his wonderful temperament towards the game as he put everything into perspective for him and he knows if he hadn't been blessed with the talent he could have ended up there working his hands to the bone. A few years ago you said Clive Everton may have been interested in doing a piece about how the Miners' Institutes have played a pivotal role in the development of great Welsh players. My generation is so grateful for being able to learn the game and play for unrestricted time, six days a week, for very little cost. Is this a story you may be interested in putting out to pay tribute to the mining heritage of lots of players? The Miners' Institutes in Wales... (laughs) were both educational, libraries and reading rooms, and sporting environments, snooker and boxing, that supported both young and old in the coalfield communities. The miners were the lifeblood of this country for many years, and were the backbone of the industrial revolution. They were never adequately rewarded for their endeavours, but still gave so much to their communities. I'm proud of my mining ancestry. Well, thank you, Ray, and you're absolutely right and that that last paragraph. Everything you say there is absolutely true. but one thing I've got to say, I didn't cut anything from the interview. Mark never said that in that interview. You may have heard it in a different one. Believe me, the whole idea, one of the ideas of running these old interviews is to do as little work as possible so that there was no editing t- taking place. I did um, reference that. I wrote a series of articles on the World Snooker website during the lockdown last year where I did mention it, so maybe to two have been conflated. Um, in terms of recognising... You're absolutely right, the, 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 the um, sort of... <laughs> industrial age as it as it were and and mining and still working in those those professions it was about community it was about actually a very clear link between home and the workplace and by definition the community that came together through both and in snooker terms you know we know people like Ray Reardon and Doug Mountjoy, as well have come from that background it seems to be particularly in South Wales um a very strong sort of entry into into snooker and um I, I, I forgive me, I've, I don't recall talking about doing an article on it, but certainly I think it's something that, uh, that we should look at, absolutely. Uh, but as I say, I didn't, I didn't cut anything out of the, uh, of the interview with Mark. Um, Jason Harrison. I don't play so much snooker these days, more eight ball league pool, but back in my teens, into my early 20s, I was at the Northern Snooker Centre every other day playing, was even at one point in Peter Lyons' Ian Williamson's coaching classes and playing in league amateur events. I also watched the likes of David Grace and Oliver Lyons grow up playing snooker there. I've followed their careers ever since, but favour Oliver Lines over David Grace to win their first Pro Tour title. That's one in the eye for David, who I know listens, so sorry about that, David, but this is just this, this chap's opinion. Um, he continues, what do you think Oliver's chances are of achieving this as well as a ranking inside the top 32? I know age is no limit these days in winning a Pro event. It would be fantastic for him to have decent runs deep into events and finally get that first Pro title. I think once that happens, many more will follow. future world champion, perhaps. Well, Jason, one thing I would say is I don't like anyone being tipped as a future world champion because it's happened so many times to so many people. I think we've said before you'd have to play the world championship every month for all the people who've been tipped as potential world champions. It's not helpful, actually, to to talk in those terms because Snoopy's a very tough game and, you know, it's about making your way and everyone does it at different speeds. Oliver's been around a while. I do rate him, actually, very highly. I, I think um, he's got a lot of potential. Um, and things do seem to be happening for him a little bit. He had a little run in the British Open. He got through his group in the Championship League. He beat Joe Perry recently to qualify for for Northern Ireland Open in Belfast. I know that he's working with uh, Steve Feeney from Sight Rights. So that's a new thing, and you know maybe slowly getting there. Um, it'd be great to see. You know, as a young lad, he's he's the sort of player that we want to be doing well. Um, but it's hard. The game's hard. And look, David Grace has done really well. He's been in a couple of big semi-finals. It's a good base they've got there at the Northern Snooker Centre, but it's tough. The game is tough, and it's hard to make progress. But it can be done. We saw it with Jordan Brown, didn't we, last year winning the Welsh Open. I mean, it's unusual for a player in that position in the rankings to just break through and win a tournament, but it can happen. You know, they're all ultimately playing the same game. The opportunities are there. So I, I hope Oliver does do well. Um, as I say, he's a sort of player who you know we, we'd like to see doing well. But um, but it's difficult, and you know, there's, there's absolutely. There's absolutely no guarantees at all uh, in this sport. We know that. One thing I've noticed actually just commentating on him is he, he does possibly get a little bit too intense at times, maybe. Now, obviously, you don't want to go the other way and relax too much, but there's a balance there. Maybe now he's focusing on, obviously, this new sort of technique, this alignment technique. Maybe actually the, the focus on that, maybe he's taking away a little bit of the pressure of actually playing the matches. He's featured actually in the, in the, new, uh, the excellent new World Snooker Tour, um, series, Make or Break. They're doing this series following sick young players through the season. Exactly the sort of content they should be doing, I think, and it's put together really well. Um, so, Oliver Lyons fans can check that out. Frank Real. Right, keeping it real. Um, he says, watching Judd over the last few years, I rarely see him tap the table in recognition of an opponent's good shot. Snooker, etc. Also, watching his interview on ITV after being beaten in the British Open and losing his number one ranking... He seemed he was quite offish and moaning that after winning five or six tournaments he should still be number one. But he hasn't won the world title in a, in a while. It would have been nice if it applauded Mark Selby in taking over at the top of the rankings. Judd's a great player, but I feel he's a bit of a bad loser in his interviews compared to others like Sean Murphy, who always takes defeat graciously. Anyway, the British Open was a great tournament despite the short format. PS, do you know if they'll keep if, do you know if they'll be a tournament at Milton Keynes this season? I love your podcast, they help me to sleep. <laughs> Well, the backhanded way to end there, Frank. But um, well, in terms of Milton Keynes, yeah, the English Open's there. Um, the English Open's in Milton Keynes in early November. So that'll be great to have a tournament there with a the crowd, Can bear in mind, obviously, all the behind closed door stuff that's gone on there uh, over the last year. We hope, obviously, things don't change and we'll, we'll, we will have a crowd there. In terms of Trump, you're right, he's a bit of a bad loser But so is Davis, so is Hendry That's not unusual, John Higgins is not a good loser really A lot of players um, at the top of the game Have taken defeat badly the, the the world number one ranking is a strange thing Because actually Because Selby has got points coming off Trump is going to go back to number one Regardless after the Northern Ireland Open They're kind of swapping over because this two year rolling system Points are coming on and off obviously You know, with every event um, I'm not going to get into the whole rankings Argument because I did a whole episode on that a couple of months ago, where I I said I thought we could come up with a different system that wasn't entirely based on prize money, tapping the table and all that. You know, you never used to really see that that much. It's it's become prevalent now. Players sort of falling over themselves to show, you know, that they sort of are on board with the etiquette. I don't care honestly if he does it or not. I think yes, we want players to be sporting absolutely, and I think Judd Trump is sporting. But you are entitled to be upset if you lose. You're actually entitled to be upset And I prefer to see honesty And sometimes you see players taking it well Mark Williams is a good loser um, You know, in terms of His sort of um, demeanour afterwards Doesn't mean he enjoys it though um, And you're right, people like Sean You know, speak well But they're still disappointed inside They just hide it better, I think um, So I don't actually mind players It can seem ungracious But, you know, they're, it's their careers It's their professions Why should they be happy? Um, So I don't personally have a problem with with his conduct there Joe Richards I just wanted to get your take on the snooker calendar this this year please I can't understand the seven week gap Between the British Open and Northern Ireland Open There's so many tournaments crammed into other months Why have so much dead time just to have qualifiers all crammed in Surely it would be more fan friendly To spread the qualifiers around and have more tournaments spread out Having so many tournaments on top of each other is always a disaster When Robertson and Judd win a big tournament They often pull out of the next one when they're crammed on top of each other. You can definitely have too much of a good thing having four tournaments on TV relentlessly in the space of a a month. keeps my interest much more when they're spread out. Surely the schedule isn't being managed effectively to keep fans' interest at peak levels through the season, or am I missing something? If it's just due to the Turkish Masters being rescheduled last minute, surely there would have been a way around having a seven-week gap. It's almost like the British Open was a pre-season tournament. The gap is so long before I can enjoy more snooker. Well, Joe. I mean, it's an interesting point. This. It, what I will say is, and I'm going to slightly defend. Well, I'm not slightly. I'm going to defend Will snooker. It's a nightmare planning the, the calendar at the moment with the pandemic. Um, it's difficult anyway because what you're balancing, and, and it's a sort of it's an embarrassment of riches in a way. You're balancing the needs of different broadcasters. We've got so many people who want to show snooker, and for example, Eurosport will have a particular week where they'll have a lot of other sport, they'll have cycling or or whatever, tennis maybe. And therefore, they don't want snooker that week because they can't schedule it. And that's the same with the BBC, it's the same with ITV. They've got to work around all these things. It's not, it's not as straightforward as just, oh, well, there's you know, there's two weeks there, we'll put a snooker tournament on. Because obviously, World Snooker want to maximise the coverage they get. So they need ITV, for example, to not be showing, I don't know, horse racing or darts or whatever else other sport they show. So it's not straightforward, and it's become more complicated because of the pandemic. I was talking to Nigel Oldfield, who's the operations executive Will Snooker Tour about this in Leicester, and he was just explaining the, the difficulties. They've actually got a skeleton calendar for next season, so not this season, but the next one. They've got a skeleton calendar, but so many things can change. Uh, parts of the world you can go to or not go to. It's difficult, and I do have sympathy. The, the, the big thing was that that Turkish Masters got moved, so that was going to be in the middle there in, in, in sort of late September. Uh, because that has gone and it's not been replaced, there is this sort of, <laughs> this sort of desert of of nothingness. Um, qualifiers, okay, but you know, in, in terms of a tournament, it does feel like a full start to the season. But I, I do feel that it's it, it's almost unavoidable just because of the the, the sort of times we're in. And I suppose, really, we should be thankful that there are tournaments at all. There are. You're right. There's going to be a rush of them coming up. Actually, you say, and obviously it's your perspective as a viewer. You think it's overkill when you have one after another, but actually the viewing figures are always higher when there's been a run of tournaments. Scottish Open last season, you know, that wouldn't be uh, regarded as the biggest event of the year by any means, but that did unbelievably well on Eurosport. Now, partly, I think, because people <laughs> were literally stuck indoors because was, there was lockdown, but also it had come after uh, the UK Championship, which had come after the Champion of Champions. There'd been a run of tournaments, and actually, and the World Grand Prix followed as well, and that did really well. Actually, viewing figures are higher when there's a series of tournaments one after another. Now, personal preference, you may prefer them spread out. But actually, from a TV perspective, they do like that. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's a fact that the calendar is unbalanced. But I think there are uh, actually mitigating circumstances as to why. Uh, We've got two emails about the Northern Ireland qualifiers. Paul Leavesley. Please can you tell me why the Northern Ireland Open qualifiers were made unavailable to UK viewers on matchroom, snooker and Eurosport player? Will it be the same for the forthcoming English Open qualifiers? James Heat on the same subject. There seems to be confusion regarding coverage of the Northern Ireland Open qualifiers. WST advertised on their website on Sunday that viewers in Europe can watch it using the Eurosport app. This morning, and he, he was writing on the first morning of it, we found no Eurosport app coverage. A number of people tweeted WST and Eurosport about it, but there was no reply. Eventually, the WST website was changed to remove any reference to Eurosport coverage. I only noticed this by chance. There was no reply to any of the Twitter queries. They also added Europe to the list of territories where matchroom-like coverage is not available. Therefore, there appeared to be nowhere in Europe, including the UK, to view the qualifiers, which seemed odd given there is coverage in China. I eventually found it on Bet365, but WST did not advertise that it can be seen on betting sites. Huh. Well, <laughs> to both Paul and James and everyone else who's asked about this, Eurosport are the rights holders for the qualifiers. Now, for some reason, they didn't show it. I don't know what that reason was, um, but it was a last minute thing, clearly, because as you say, it was advertised that it would be on the day before and it wasn't on. Um, it's not a great situation. I think it's kind of strange, though, that it's actually on betting sites, but people are sort of, it's almost a little bit illicit. People aren't told that they're on there. So you, if you put five quid. Into, for example, bet 365. You don't even have to have a bet, just put five quid in. You can watch the qualifiers on there, but it wasn't widely advertised. So in the UK, you could watch them, but a lot of people, and they obviously pay for the Eurosport app, they may pay for Matchroom Live, were expecting to see it on there and couldn't. Not a great situation. And I do think, and I saw a lot of people, you know, understandably tweeting Will Snooker, I do think they should have said something. What they did was what they always do when there's trouble, they just buried their head in the sand and hoped that it'd go away. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect a reply or at least some sort of just comment, listen, we said it would be on Eurosport, it's not, you can watch it on the following betting websites. What, what, what's the problem with that? At least then people can watch it. What they did was just say nothing and that, that doesn't help anybody. Um, you know, they, They're making money from the qualifiers, as I said I think last week, you know, through the streaming model they've got, they're making money. So. They, they, I think they should make uh, make fans you know, aware of, of where they can watch them and, and maybe also let them know why they can't watch them where they expect to. Now, Matt Tarrant emailed me before he went to the British Open final in Leicester and uh, he's only his third match he'd ever seen live. He says his first match was the 1985 British Open final, Sylvina Francisco against Kirk Stevens in Derby. His second was the world quarterfinals at the Crucible this year, Stuart Bingham, Anthony McGill. He says, my third will be the British Open final in Leicester. And uh, he said, well, he actually says, because this was before the final, he said, at this stage it looks like we may have a first-time ranking event winner. Of course, we didn't. Mark Williams, very experienced winner, was the last man standing. Anyway, he said, it's strange how life works in circles. Three matches in 36 years. Got me thinking, how many snooker matches do you think you've been to live? I think I, must, I think I must be close to 1,000 football matches and maybe 100 rugby league. You must have seen thousands of snooker matches. Do you ever get bored of it? Well, it's interesting that point. I mean, I don't know how many matches I've seen live. I, I haven't counted them, and I, I wouldn't care to, frankly. But that question—do you ever get bored of it? I was thinking about this, and the honest answer is no, I don't. And I think a lot of that is because you, you just get a variety of matches, different players, different scenarios, different subplots about what it all means. But also, I'm—and I mean this—I'm genuinely grateful to be doing it at all, to be to be in the position where you know I'm, I'm effectively paid to watch snooker now. You know, as a, as a fan, when I was young. If someone had said to me, that's what you'd be doing, I wouldn't have believed them. So I don't get bored. There's, like any job, there's days when you may be more enthusiastic than others, but I, I always look forward to certainly being at Torments and being given the opportunity to to just be part of it. It's amazing, really. So, um, no, strangely, I don't. I mean, there's matches that can be bo- can end up being boring, <laughs> but that's different to being bored about being there. Um, there's matches that can be rotten, we know that But <laughs> but that doesn't mean I'm not looking forward to them And, and not, not sort of enjoying In some way being part of them Ryan Freeman writes This is a quick question Following the Championship League coverage I really enjoyed the use of active players in commentary throughout the event I was just wondering when you have a player come into commentary And they may have no experience in professional sports commentary What kind of advice or guidance do you give them Before and during the match To help them with their first venture in commentary? Thanks, Ryan. Well, yeah, we had a, we had a lot of players. Matchroom wanted to sort of just change the coverage a little bit and maybe responding again to Judd Trump's interview with Phil Haig, which is sort of almost now become the sort of Frost Nixon of snooker that there's so many ripples from that interview that Phil did with him before the World Championship. One of them, he was talking about the commentary and maybe it needed modernising. So Matchroom asked every player in the Championship League, 128 players, would you like to commentate? A lot of them put their names forward. There wasn't room for everyone, but Matchroom came up with a list and we had all sorts of people. We had Jamie Clark came in, Stephen Hallworth, who I mentioned was a a great success. Um, Who else, Ryan Day, Mark Davis, Liam Highfield, uh, Tom Ford, Michael Holt, all sorts of people um, ended up commentating with us. And it was very interesting to get different perspectives. But in terms of the sort of help, if you like, that myself and Phil Yates gave them, I mean, I think it was important I felt it was important not to actually come in and saying, Listen, I'm the commentator and I'm telling you what you're gonna do and you're gonna do it like this. It was important for them to find their own way into it. The- I'll tell you exactly what what I did. So we take a player, say Ryan Day, never commentate before, sit him down about fifteen minutes before the match, show him the most important thing is show him how the actual box works, the box that we use, um, turning the microphone on and off turning the levels up so you can hear the director you can hear the effects in the arena the referee all that sort of stuff so that's just a sort of basic technical thing not difficult to to understand or to explain and then I think it was important to try and relax them because you know it's quite nerve-wracking if you've not done it before you're talking to however many people are out there so just reassure them listen you're talking about something you understand we're not showing you you know quantum physics or, or something like that or, or a sport maybe you've never seen before you're a snooker player you're talking about something you understand. And I always say the same thing, which is we're not flying a plane. In other words, if there are mistakes, which there will be, it really doesn't matter. No one's going to die as a result of it. You know, It's just snooker. We're doing something we enjoy. So hopefully that, that sort of helped them to uh, relax. I think it's important to sort of say to them, you don't have to talk for the sake of it. Um, but these guys, they've watched snooker all their lives. They kind of understand almost through osmosis how commentary works. You know, And they all found their own way... Uh, of, of doing it and I think no one was bad you know people had different strengths and different um, approaches to it but they were all interested to work with and it's an experiment that I think uh, definitely for that tournament anyway you know was a success um, so I, I suppose our, our role was really just to try and relax them and make them feel um, that they could just enjoy doing it and that it wasn't to sort of it wasn't a competition, it wasn't something that they were being judged on, it was something that hopefully they, you know, enjoyed. And a lot of them did, and a lot of them, you know, said they'd like to, they'd like to do it again. So, um, yeah, I think it worked well. Now, this is <laughs> an interesting one. Finn Gower, OK? Finn, if you're listening, I got this a few weeks ago. He says, I'm not trying to be mean here, but I have a suggestion for Chris Wakelin. I think he should use a wig, because my father said all his hair fell off. My father also happens to be US correspondent James Cook. Anyway, I think he should use a wig because he looks kind of bad and I think maybe a brown hair wig would work. He's probably rich rich enough to get the expensive kind. Also, Stephen Hendry ought to dye his hair because it's really white and he doesn't look so good. As I'm writing this, my father said I should be nice. So here's the nice part. I really like your podcast, it's really funny and it would be a huge honour to get this read out. I know it's a little long, but please can you read it out? (laughs) Well, you see, James Cook, a much-valued US correspondent, and he did say his family listen in the car. Well, this is what you've spawned, James. You've got your son. I'm assuming this is not some prank, some gag. I'm assuming this is all legit. You've got your son suggesting Chris Wakelin should wear a wig. Chris, I apologise, but I was asked to (laughs) read. I I can't speak, listen, when it comes to hair. I should get one as well. But anyway, Finn, I've read that out, so hopefully that will give you some sort of uh, kudos with your family. And if any other members of James Cook's family want to write in, uh, and insult the players, they're, they're more than welcome to do that. Um, all, all good fun, I think, all good fun. Um, Ian Lewis, now of course this is back to the British Open, he said, I thought the Mark allen Ryan Evans match was incredible. Credit to both players, and I hope for the sake of snooker, Evans does well on the tour, because there's no reason why women shouldn't be successful in snooker. However, I would question Evans' conduct. If she's promoting wi- women in snooker, then ignoring the fist bump is a poor role model. On this occasion, Alan was the bigger person and even acknowledged good shots by tapping the table more than once, something I didn't see Evans do. I also thought Evans' excuse of Covid and no handshakes was poor. Players have been joining elbows for a while and she would have seen this at the Worlds. For for a young aspiring girl or young lady watching that, who doesn't know the history between them, they would just see this as normal behaviour, which it isn't. Nevertheless, history aside, what a match. Bit more cue ball control from Evans and she'll stand a chance on the tour. Certainly can pot no problem. Well I commentated on this in, uh, with Stephen Hendry and it was a, it was a strange old night, um, the fact that it was at night and there was a, a, a big crowd in added to the atmosphere and the tone was set really from the off, Rhian Evans walked out sort of saluting her um, section of the audience who were in pretty good voice all night I think it's fair to say. I agree with what you say about Mark Allen, he, he conducted himself in exemplary fashion actually during the match but look there's a history between them and we don't know all about it um but i think we know enough about it to know that that definitely informed you know the tension and the atmosphere around the match i felt a bit sorry for some of the other players in the arena i know tom ford wasn't too happy um with all the shouting out but here's the thing okay and this is this was a strange thing that i only sort of realized afterwards Sa- i was sat in the arena i didn't think the atmosphere actually was that kind of rowdy. But watching it back on TV. It comes across that way. It comes across as really kind of leery and rowdy. And it's kind of weird. You'd think it'd be the other way around in a way. But I promise you in the arena. That, yeah there was shouting out. And it got a bit lively. But it didn't feel quite as intimidating. As it did watching it back. I don't know why that is. Um, I thought there were times. I mean Rihanna actually at one point asked her supporters to calm down. There would clearly been so much build up to it. Um, it was a strange old thing just a unique kind of situation and I think we were all sort of glad when it was over it was a cracking match I agree and and she was a bit unlucky I think not to win it but um, yeah it was uh, it was a weird old uh, a weird old experience that we'll do one more email and then we'll get on with the archive interview so it's from Jamie Brannan He says, I've heard and read a fair amount recently about the merits of the British Open format. My personal view was the format was a little too short for an event that carried the name of an event that was once one of the biggest on the circuit. I'm of the opinion that the prestige of a tournament is reflected not just by the prize fund, but also the format. The UK Championship has slipped in the pecking order once had been only behind the World Championship of snooker events for the simple reason that two session matches have been abolished except for the final. I'm on board with having a variety of formats, but are things too skewed towards shorter formats? Only the World Championship and Tour Championship are consistently tournaments with two-session matches. I personally much favour the longer format as it allows for a richer narrative to develop. The excessive playing of events with round-robin formats has also added to the prevalence of shorter matches. It's not realistic to expect another event mirroring the World Championship, but I certainly feel there's an appetite for increase in longer format matches on the calendar to punctuate the general diet of best of 7s and best of elevens. The viewing figures for the Tour Championship have been comparable, if not a fraction superior, to the other events in the ITV portfolio. I'd also like to add that I share your view: the Shawshank Redemption is overrated. You mentioned it on the podcast a few months back. Well, there you are. You see, Jamie, that's one in the eye for one in the eye for Tim Robbins. There. Um, well, I, th- I think I kind of said last week. You know, we have a variety of formats, um, and that's a good thing. Um, <sighs> Yeah, I I don't think we should assume that every snooker fan automatically thinks longer formats are better. The World Championship stands out, and I'm not going to revisit that argument again about the length of the tournament, but that is the ultimate test, and it's the ultimate test because of the format, because they're long matches. I really, personally, I really like the best of sevens. I'm not a great fan of intervals. I think the fact there are no intervals um, in those matches, you just play the match and that's it, is really good, but I wouldn't want every event to be like that. Um, I think it's good. The Masters, I mean, Masters actually used to be best of seven, and then it was best of nine. Now it's best of eleven. I think best of eleven is a good uh, length of match for that tournament. So I think it's good to have variety. Um, is there room for a, a longer format tournament? Well, the problem with that, of course, is that if it's a ranking event, which is the, the, the sort of the form of tournament that will snooker tour have to promote, it can take a long time to play if they're all best of nineteen or best of seventeen. Um So that might count against it. The truth is, you you hear people, and I'm sure I'm guilty of this, trot out their own opinions that they then project onto other people. So you'll hear, oh, no one's got an attention span anymore to watch longer matches. Is that true? I'm not so sure. It is. I'm not so sure it is. If you look at like Netflix, these sort of the sort of box set sort of generation, they'll they'll sit for hours watching something if it's interesting. Um, and sport, I, I don't think is any different. But I think it's important to have variety, and we've got that now. And that tour championship is one of my favourite events of the season. I think it's a fantastic tournament, um, in part because of the longer matches. But I'm not I'm not anti short matches. Um, I think ultimately, what the uh, only thing you can judge it on is, is public reaction. British Open did well for ITV, and I suspect I don't I can't say it'll be on ITV again because I'm not privy to that. But I suspect the tournament will be back on in a reasonably similar format, possibly with some qualifying. But I think it was judged a success. But it's important to have tournaments that are over a longer distance as well, I agree And uh, yeah, what's interesting in all this debate is the, the sort of bog standard best of nine That we all sort of grew up with has kind of receded a little bit We're going to see it eventually at the Turkish Masters, German Masters, European Masters But it used to be pretty much every event was like that outside the world in the UK And now that format that did the game you know, pretty solidly for a number of years Seems to have kind of disappeared a bit, but anyway Variety is the spice of life. And speaking of variety, he says, segueing, we are proud members of the Sports Social Network. So you can check out their other podcasts on all variety of different sports uh, on there. And you can also email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Now, bearing in mind, I'm not, I, I said I would just be putting out essentially repeats. I've been speaking now for over half an hour. Um, so it's time to get into this week's archive interview. So to this week's archive interview. And this was a chat I had in 2018 with Mark Allen. It came just a couple of weeks before he won the Masters, which you could argue is his greatest success so far. One thing about Mark Allen is that he's naturally open, it's just how he is. He has to say what's on his mind. Now, sometimes this has led him into trouble, but I think he's relatable. Some players are rational, they strategically plan what they're going to do, what they're going to say, to best represent themselves. Mark, I think, is more emotional, he's a man of instinct. He doesn't calibrate his comments, he just speaks from the heart. And although I haven't always agreed with him, I respect that. Modern sport can be so cautious, so sterile, everyone walking on eggshells trying not to be caught out. It can be bland. Mark Allen is not bland. He was a fiercely talented junior and by the time he turned professional was not only used to winning but crucially he wasn't frightened of it. He'd won the Northern Ireland Amateur title at every age division and all the big international amateur events including the World Amateur title. His professional debut came at the Northern Ireland Trophy, an invitation event for which he was a wild card. He beat Steve Davis on television. In the next round, he beat John Higgins. His star rose quickly. He liked the limelight. He liked the pressure. He was a great competitor with no fear of reputations. So far, he's won five ranking titles, the Masters and the Champion of Champions. This is a perfectly reasonable haul of trophies, but I suppose it's testament to how highly Allen is rated that many feel he could have won more. His game is based around tight control of the cue ball. He always seems to be right in behind the next object ball, the cue ball travelling the minimal possible distance when he's playing his best stuff. So why hasn't there been even greater success? Well, we must remember, snooker players have real lives, real problems, things to deal with away from the glare of the spotlight. In the interview, Alan touches on his regrets around how he dealt with becoming a young father. Like several snooker players has suffered from mental health issues, the byproduct of so much isolation, especially on foreign trips far away from home. Many think of the life of a snooker player as glamorous, and it can be, and the financial rewards are considerable. But it's also often mundane, travelling, hotels, hanging around. They don't need your sympathy, but some empathy wouldn't go amiss, particularly in this age of instant opinion where context and nuance are often lacking. Alan's World Championship record He's the one that stands out as being way below what we would expect of such a talented player. He's been in just one Crucible semi-final, and that was 12 years ago. Well, that torment tests and punishes the very best. Maybe stamina is an issue. It's hard mentally and physically to keep going to the well day after day. But personally, I wouldn't discount Alan's chances of success in Sheffield yet. He's good enough, surely, to seriously challenge for the world title at some point in the near future, if he can just get on a run there. Recently he suggested off-table problems may prevent him from competing this season. I hope not. Whatever's going on is clearly private, but Mark Allen definitely adds something to the tour. I wish him well as we listen again to his story, in his own words, from 2018. Mark, how did you get into snooker? What was your introduction? Uh,
1: Probably just the boring, usual way. Uh, My dad used to play and he used to take me and my brother every Sunday down to the local social Mm. club. Uh, once a week really, started from there and then, after I got a bit more interested in it, I couldn't go to the club that my dad took me to anything but Sunday. Mm-hmm. So he sent me to the local snorter club then, and uh, used to go down maybe two or three days a week, always after a football match on a Saturday, uh, and then just grew from there. There was a lot of ones in the club that I played at, that were doing really well in the amateur scene. I think four of the top six in the country at the time were all from that club. So quite Fortunate at the time that I had good practice partners and they all helped me along.
0: And also, you're from part of the world, Northern Ireland, they've got these two legends, Alex Siggins, Dennis Taylor, both world champions. Snooker really popular in that part of the world when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. I think I remember talking to a few of the guys in the club recently. Uh, like Andrum's a very small town, mm-hmm. population of about 50 or 60,000. Uh, I think at one stage there was about Fifty or sixty snooker tables right. across like three or four different clubs, yeah. and you used to have to queue for tables. Yeah. That's how popular it was. Mm. Unfortunately, now we're down to I think maybe ten. Right. Uh, it is getting back a little bit. Mm. Uh, I know from personal experience in the club I play at, it died off a little bit. But it definitely seems to be a bit of bit of a resurgence. But mm. what Alex and Dennis done for Northern Ireland snooker as a whole, no second to none. No, and we we have to thank them for that. Myself, Joe Swale, and all the ones that are coming through. Uh, no, definitely
0: the end, think. Mm. But do you think you were good right away? Were you naturally talented or did you improve the sort of more competitions you played? Or was it a bit of both, maybe?
1: Maybe a bit of both. Like at the start, I was useless <laughs> the way everyone is, yeah. but I think I picked it up pretty quick. You no, know, I was able to make 30s and 40s pretty quickly. Mm. I made my first century after playing for maybe just under a year. Mm. Uh, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then just played in every tournament I possibly could. You know, I had to put the football sort of in the back burner mm. and they always used to clash with the junior tournaments on a Saturday mm. morning. So, yeah, I used to go to all the snooker events on Saturday. It took me quite a while to win my first match. Mm. You know, I lost agonizingly <laughs> on the black many times right. and then eventually I won a match and won a couple of matches. Then I won my first tournament. It was in the Northern under-14s mm. and then just went from there, really. I won, you know, pretty much everything at junior level and senior level back home. And, yeah, give me... It gave me good confidence to into the pro scene. Mm. No, It's all right, some people, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but some people that have done nothing in the amateur scene and get free key school, mm. they're maybe not ready. Mm. Whereas I felt like I was ready straight away because I'd won the world amateurs, won the European championships, won the European under 19s, and won everything in Northern Ireland. Mm. So I felt like I was coming in on the back of a lot of good wins. So I was very, very confident starting out.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people may not know, know this. I mean, you won literally every. As you say, in every age division you won the Northern Ireland title, like you say you won the European Juniors, European Championship, World Amateur. So you've done everything as an amateur, yeah. hadn't you? maybe that's why you were so confident when you turned pro.
1: Yeah, it was disappointing for me that I turned pro without winning the World Under 21, mm. because I don't think anyone's ever won, all four. Mm. Uh, I lost in the semis to Louis Song, who was on right, the tour yeah. for many years, and the other semi-final that year was Ding against Robertson. Right, yeah. uh, so <laughs> it was a strong feeling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was disappointing not to win that, but it gave me so much confidence to get in. Mm. To the pro game, and obviously I was very fortunate in getting an invite to yeah. the non Trophy, you know, my very first tournament. Yeah. Not many people get their first mm. ever pro match live on TV in their mm. hometown.
0: How did you feel about uh, that then? Because you're going and you're playing Steve Davis, you know, a legend, on telly, in like you say, in your home country.
1: I'll be honest and say that if I'm looking back on it now, I was very, very fortunate, and it was an unbelievable experience. But at the time, I didn't think about it. Right. I just it was just another match for me and. Yes, it was one that was looking forward to, and playing Davis obviously legend of the game, but it was just another match for me that I was trying mm. to win, and I don't sound silly saying that coming coming into the game I was at a complete nobody, mm. and my first match is against the Nugget. Mm. No, mm. not many people are getting into it like that. But I think because I'd won so much as a youngster that I was just wanting to win, yeah. uh, and obviously I beat him, I beat Higgins, and yeah. even playing Henry in the quarterfinal, like I wanted to win. And obviously, looking back on it now, it was probably naive to think that I yeah, could, but yeah. it was just the confidence I had at the time. Yeah.
0: But to beat, OK, so you beat Davis. At that time, he was a little bit on the slide, but John Higgins wasn't. I mean, he was very yeah. much a top player. So that win, I mean, did you even think about what it meant then? Or was it, like you say, you're just, you're just doing what you've always done, which is playing matches? Just playing matches. Yeah. Uh,
1: I was riding right the crest of a wave, though, obviously winning lots of matches as an amateur. But to sort of do it on the big stage like that, in front of my home crowd as well, whenever I was getting fantastic support, considering... I was a complete nobody. Mm. Uh, to be able to do it on that big stage was good for me, mm. and it was an experience in itself. playing Henry he was the person I looked up to the mm. most coming through, and uh, just to play him my first event, even though I got absolutely pumped. Yeah. Uh, I remember actually watching him, and he had a presence around the table mm. and an aura. And I remember playing him later that year in the UK Championships, and I had to not look at him because yeah, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. felt like I was yeah. a bit starstruck. Because yeah. I was just coming in, but they're all part part and parcel of the learning yeah. curve, and. Very, very fortunate at the time that Mm. me and Joe Swale get invited to that tournament because I think that set me on the right path straight Mm. away.
0: But then, of course, after that you you go back to what is normal for a new pro, the qualifiers, which is a very different setup no real crowd, you're not playing the legends, you're playing the people around you in the rankings, but how did you sort of adjust to that?
1: Again, it didn't bother me Mm. because I was used to playing amateur tournaments with no-one watching. It was an out-of-body experience playing the Northern Trophy because there was lots of people watching, Mm. but in general I was used to playing in front of nobody. Uh it sounds like i'm really really lucky here but <laughs> but my first uh qualifier i played a guy called james tatton mm. and uh he turned up late after the interval and got up the frame and i mm. won 5-0 then right. so you know not a lot of people get their first mm. match handed to them like that mm. either but obviously it was 4-0 up but probably would have been done on one but we mm. will never know that but yeah it was just those little things went mm. for me it was strange because at the time there was only six or seven tournaments yeah. the big gaps even i think there was a four or five week gap from that qualifier to the main event and in that time, we found out that Ryan was pregnant right. and my head was completely gone at the yeah. time because it was just not something we planned for and yeah. still very young. And I was very, very lucky that there was a five-week gap because my head just wasn't in the right place. Mm-hmm. And I remember my first match after that was a qualifier against Scott McKenzie and I was 8 all, it was for the UK, mm-hmm. uh, 8 all first and nine and i managed to make an 84 in the last frame and i only remember it because it was i think it was 12 reds 12 pinks right. and uh, i still say to this day if i lost that match i could possibly have dropped off tour because mm. i was in such a bad place mentally because mm. we just weren't expecting to have a little one and mm. we're, weren't ready for it and once i got that match under a belt it sort of got my head back in the game and mm. End up going on to qualify for the UK. Mm. I beat David Gray at the UK Championships and lost to the Nugget then Mm. nine seven the year he got to the final against Ding. So yeah, very very fortunate. There was that big gap because Mm. it had been like it is now, Mm. and there's a five week spell of tournament, tournament, tournament. Probably could have went bad for me.
0: Yeah, I think after that though you sort of you did settle in pretty well, didn't you? And you got to the Crucible two thousand seven. It's a big deal for it. It's like a rite of passage for a snooker player to play there. And you've gone out and beaten Ken Doherty in the first round. Yeah.
1: Yeah keep saying it but it was just another match
0: yeah. so I'd but why, why though because like that is a big deal to, to walk down those steps wrong, and coming
1: yeah. out of the principal I was buzzing like, yeah. hair and back of my neck yeah. standing up and you know, it took me a while to settle even though I won the first four frames mm. I still felt edgy Yeah. and then when it got close I'm, I'm quite happy that it went close because if I'd have won I'm not saying this would ever happened but if I'd have won 10-0 mm. it wouldn't have been the same because yeah. you don't get that punch back and yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't know how you'd handle it whereas yeah. Doherty threw everything at me and I managed yeah. to still beat him uh, but at the time it was just another game mm. I'd won so many matches I was you go going there not expecting to win the tournament you No, know, you, and by this stage I'm sort of experienced enough to know that I'm not mm. going to be one of the favourites for doing the mm. tournament so I'm going there to try and enjoy it and I did mm. you know, even though I lost in the second round to Matthew Stevens I enjoyed every minute but I probably enjoyed the Stevens match more mm. than I did the Doherty match mm. but yeah, to play at the Crucible every year special, not mm. just the first year. Every year special. I'm still going there now. You know, it's, I've been there ten or eleven years in a row. Mm. You not know, going there every year special and something that you you're not quite get used to. Mm.
0: I guess I think it was the year later when you lost to Hendry in the first round. Yeah, and that was the other side of the coin. Yeah. a real hard defeat to take.
1: Yeah, that's still probably one of my hardest ever defeats. And, you know, nine seven up, and I, I remember I missed the pink in the middle. It's funny how you remember things, but looking back on it now i probably should have just made sure of the pink mm-hmm. and played safe on the last red because it would have been 35 up with 35 on uh, and i tried to force the pink to get on close to the red and of course henry does what he does yeah. clears up does a one visit the decider uh, but i think it was more heartbreaking at the time because it would have been great to be henry at the crucible obviously he's the crucible king but i needed to win that match again at 16. Mm-hmm. as it turned out you no know, few results went my way and i managed to finish number 16 anyway mm-hmm. but at the time I didn't know that and I was mm. devastated and it's yeah, it's probably one of the hardest defeats I've ever had but it's all experience mm. there's going to be many many hard defeats in this game mm. and they hurt a lot more probably than the wins mm. that you get uh, but they, you learn so much more from them
0: yeah and you were still young I mean you're like 22 I think at the time you don't, and when you're 22 you don't know how young that is do you but I, I'm just wondering like you know you've had like you've played snooker up to that point for many years already what were your sort of Ambitions? Did you go into it thinking, right, well, I want to be, you know, world champion. I want to do this, that, and the other, or was it just, okay, I'm just playing snooker like I always have done?
1: Probably a bit of both. Mm. I'm still more in the mindset of I'm just playing snooker, but because I'd won so many matches and on the verge of the sixteen after towards the end of my third season, mm. I was I was so confident. You no, know, although I hadn't been to sort of many later stages. I think a couple of semis mm. or something maybe at that stage, but I was just like, winning so many matches. Uh, but it was under the old structure the tiered yeah. system where you were playing people of a similar rank in early doors and yeah. I think that helped me so much along the way mm. because as much as I back my ability, if I'm thrown in a deep end straight away first round like it is now mm. and I'm constantly playing top player, top player, top player mm. The chances are you're not going to win many of those games and you'll drop off tour So mm. yeah, fortunate that I came through the tiered system. I think mm. it was a far better structure uh, But I was just so confident that I won so many matches. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Then t- two thousand nine at the Crucible, you got to the semis. Um, what was that like, being suddenly in the one table setup?
1: Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, that's the best experience I've ever had at the mm-hmm. Crucible. Now I've had some one-off matches where I've played really good snooker and one easy, but that, as a whole, that whole tournament, uh, I flew through the whole tournament. Mm-hmm. You no, know, beat Ronnie in round two. You beat Randay, who was flying. He was the top. I think he was number six in the world at the yeah. time. Uh, and then yeah, playing Higgins in the semis, and mm-hmm. the one table setup is completely different mm-hmm. to anything you'll ever experience. You go from <coughs> being claustrophobic. Mm. and sitting right next to your opponent, mm-hmm. being able to touch the table when you're in your seat to feeling like you've all the room in the world And mm. uh, The second session in particular, Higgins played flawless and I didn't feel like I'd done that much wrong when he beat me 7-1 mm. I didn't feel involved in the game at all and mm. because you're sitting so far away yeah. it adds to that, that yeah. you don't feel involved <laughs> yeah. but proud of myself from 13-3 down, I got back in the match mm. I had Higgins on the ropes a little bit and I, just a bit of inexperienced, I got a bit excited twice mm. In the last session i missed two easy balls that i shouldn't have missed yeah. but other than that i like i'm so happy with the way i played from 13 down honestly could have made it 15-all from 13 down mm-hmm. and not many people ever do that but disappointing now that i haven't got back to that one table sure. setup uh i think it was maybe the next year i lost 13-12 at dot in the quarters mm-hmm. and that was one where i felt like i could win the tournament that was the first time i'd really even though i got to the semis against higgins that year against Dot was the first time I actually thought I can win this. Mm. It was 12-10 up, missed one shot into the middle pocket, never seen another ball. He made three one visits. Mm. Uh, but that is the standard you have to play at the Crucible. I understand that. But I felt like that year was possibly my year and mm. you know, I let one go there.
0: Mm. So you were sort of, you'd become a top player very much and you were sort of knocking on the door for titles and it wasn't quite happening, was it? You got to the UK final against Trump and it was a, you made a great comeback there as well. You just didn't quite get get over the line uh, was that sort of frustrating because at that time everyone was sort of talking about you as a tournament winner it wasn't quite happening at that point for you was it
1: yeah it was frustrating but look i i don't really care what people say mm. you know i I think at that time i'd lost eight semi-finals mm. in a row without ever reaching a final so it was like a monkey off my back beating ricky walden there yeah. even though i lost the final against trump i lost the, the better player on the day i had no qualms about that i played right and well and trump just played a little bit better i always felt that a tournament win was not far mm. away uh, it didn't matter to me what people kept <coughs> saying in the press about semi-final this, mm. semi-final that. It didn't matter to me that because I knew I had the talent, I had the belief in myself that I was going to win. Mm. So it was just a matter of time to keep doing what you're doing on the practice table and hopefully it'll come. Yeah. It
0: did. Well, it came, it came um, at the World Open 2012 in, in high China. I think it's fair to say you didn't necessarily enjoy the week off the table. That, that's, we know yeah. that you didn't enjoy it, but it didn't seem to affect you on the table.
1: No, I think when you're out there, you just play, don't you? Mm. And look, it was still to this day it's one of the worst places I've ever been. Mm. Uh, the facilities were dreadful, but I think I've learned to deal with that a bit better than what I did then. Mm. Uh, but yeah, when you get out there to play, you're playing on the same twelve <coughs> by six. You know, thinking about the dead cats that are yeah. in the roof and all that there sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know what happened that week. I won. I won a couple of deciding frames against Trump and against Selby. I think the last sixteen, semi final, and the, the they're the matches that you need to be on the right side of. No, they easily could have lost those matches. But I remember fin- I finished my first four matches in that tournament a Century in the last frame. Mm. And two of them were in the deciding frame. So I knew my game was in good shape. Didn't expect to win the final the way I did. Mm. Uh, I couldn't have played really any better. and beat Stephen Lee 10-1. So it was a good way to win my first. But in a way, it's a bit disappointing as well. Because you want your first to be dramatic. You want mm. your first to be exciting. Whereas I played that well, it wasn't ever mm. a contest. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful mm. way towards Stephen Lee. I just had a day where I didn't miss a ball, really. Mm. Uh, but you want your first to be like sort of a 10 9 on the black to sure. show that you've got a bit of grit, and yeah. a bit of bottle. But like, I'll take them when they come.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think also that week, it was a little sort of window into the sort of isolation that players can feel when they're away from home. Um, and you've spoken about sort of mental health issues as well and, and just sort of loneliness because it's a very yeah. lonely sport isn't it snooker It is and it's something I still struggle
1: with mm. to this day. Like I hate being away from home, I hate being overseas but it is part and parcel of what we do. Uh, I've learned to deal with it a bit better but it's something I still really, really don't enjoy. I'd nothing rather than be at home and see my wife and my, my little girl and you know, just the, the normal things you do as a family and that's the hardest part. You know, the, the the rewards are great if you're doing really well in the game, but what I have a question is if you're not sort of one of the top sixteen, is it worth that sacrifice? Mm. And I know that to make a sport, there's going to be lots of ones that don't make the top sixteen. There's the ones that struggle to stay on tour, the sort of ones that make up the numbers. But yeah, is it really worth the sacrifice to mm. miss all that whenever you're not making any money?
0: Mm. How low did you feel? I mean, were you you were depressed, right?
1: Yeah, very. Mm. I've sp- I've spoke openly about no. it, like in. Uh, something I have no problem talking with at all now because I feel like I'm in a much better place. But yeah, it was it was hard. There was lots of times where I felt like I just didn't want to be there anymore. Nothing, I never ever tried to take my own life or anything like that, no. but I did feel that low at times. I, mean, I used to just, I lived on my own and you no, know, I just bought a house and stayed on my own. and I just used to stay in the house and it sounds really bad. I'd listen to just sad music. Just sit <laughs> in my bedroom and yeah. not move and like that's what i had done for days. I think it's a, it's a vicious circle, because the more you do that, the worse you feel. Mm. But it just took a few good friends and family in order to get me out of that. I know this, sort of started talking a little bit more, went and seen a psychologist. and Talking to him as a stranger was really, really good for mm. me. I felt like I could talk to him a lot more openly than I could to someone that knew me. Mm. I don't know why that was, but I just felt more comfortable. But with talking to him, I was able to talk to friends and family then a bit more openly about it, and that got me right through it. And now the same people I had talked to then sort of know the signs to look for if i ever sort of have a relapse type thing but i don't feel like that's ever going to happen again i mm. feel like i've got good people around me very very settled off the table and the snooker's in a good place so yeah everything's going well there
0: that's good because snooker it's, you have to be very introspective and sort of inward looking to play it in a way don't you, you have to sort of get in that zone that they talk yeah. about and i think a lot of players maybe don't always get out of that when they're away from the table did you, did you sort of find that as well that you were sort of Almost sort of trapped in your own mind in a way, a little bit. Uh,
1: yeah, possibly, possibly you, you do. You have to be selfish in this game. You're, you're playing for yourself at the end of the day. But I think in the recent years, in particular. I've become more open. You know, I've got, it sounds like silly things to say, but it's things I wasn't doing. Just socialising mm. at tournaments. Now, I would never have sat with a, another player at dinner because mm. I wanted to stay in my bubble. Mm. But it just let itself to bad things. And now I have quite all the time for dinner and a couple of drinks with so like mm. so Sean and. Stevie McGuire, you know, people like that, Tom Ford, just, I've got good people around me now, even in the snicker world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Socialising is a massive thing for me now, I feel like if I can do that and not isolate myself in mm-hmm. the room, then I'm doing something right.
0: Good, and do you think, because as I say, part of that initial World Open win, you were fine, I think for things you said on Twitter, do you think that what you were saying was part of what you've just described, that sort of isolation that you felt? Possibly. Reaction against it,
1: maybe. Yeah, possibly. But a lot of what I said was true. Right. <laughs> uh, people, some people don't like the truth. Mm-hmm. And I still stand by what I said at the time. That the place was disgusting. Something that Word never have improved definitely on over the lo- last lot of years. We're going to slightly better places. There's still one or two that aren't very good. Mm-hmm. But in general, the places that we go to now are better. Better facilities, uh, just better food places, better accommodation, things like that. But at the time, like that was disgraceful where we were. and. No, I was just saying what a lot of players were already saying. Mm. and Maybe not saying it in the correct way, but there's a lot of truth in what I said and people just don't like it.
0: Yeah, not, you, I think you're right. A lot of people would have felt the same, but not, not everyone says it. You don't mind saying it, do you? No, if you want to, it's
1: my life at the end yeah. of the day and I feel like I should be able to say these things. Obviously, there's been some things in the past that I've said that, not that I wish I didn't say them, but I wish I'd have said them better. Uh, I think perhaps the way I've said things over the years gets swept under the carpet because of how I say it, and what I'm actually meaning within that gets lost. Uh, you know, it's been well documented about you know, the Chinese thing and I you know, get fined heavily for that, but there is a lot of truth in what I say. Maybe the way I said it at the time was completely wrong and I hold my hands up for that, but there is a lot of truth in it. You know, I'm not the only one that says it, and it's been you know, shown on TV and things, things like that. And it's something that could be clamped down on. It has improved a lot. But at the time, yeah, I was really, really frustrated, and I felt like these sort of things were—they were an added thing as to why I wasn't doing better, and they were costing me money for na- you no know, f- financial terms. Things were, and these these things get to you. Mm. You know, like especially when you're on your own all the time, yeah. and you're constantly thinking over about this and that. And, you know, you, and
0: it's something you've had to learn, I guess, to yeah, maybe. Look, I think now trying to put pressure on yourself by getting. I'm still that, quite
1: maybe. vocal, but yeah. I think I've learned a bit more level-headed in the way I express, mm. express things. Uh, it can get expensive.
0: But also, like one tweet late at night does not reflect who you are as a person, does it? You know, I mean, we're sat here no. ch- chatting nicely now. You know, it's not like you're just a, a raging ball of fire no. all the time. Not at all.
1: No, not <laughs> at all. But look, I'm an expressive person mm. and I'm an emotional person. But I think, unfortunately for me, and I can't change it, some people are always going to tire me with that brush. Mm. That you no. Know, Called a racist all the time by certain people on social Mm. media, and that's not who I am. No, No, like I maybe made a bad comment or two, but that's not who I am at Mm. all. I'm just an emotional person, I express my views on Mm. things, and I wish I could change some things about the way I said it, but Mm. it is me, and I'm I'm not going to change. I think, well, deep down, I'll always know the ones that are close to me my family, friends, knowing my close circle they always know who I am, and that's Mm. all that will ever really matter to me.
0: And you're also, I mean, this is not so much a question as just a kind of comment really, you're incredibly sporting in the arena. I mean, you really are. And that's, is that just something you've always been from being a kid or is that the respect you have for snooker?
1: I think it's the way I've been brought up. Mm. You know, it's, look, it's a sport. There's going to be a winner and loser in every day. Some defeats are a lot harder to take than others, but sometimes you have to appreciate good shots, good performances. Mm. And I think that's all part part of the game. We're fortunate in snooker that that's been, you know, the trait over many many years mm. that snooker does go down that route but it's something that's being lost a little i think there's not enough for that mm. and people might say maybe me showing that i'm too nice out there that's not the case at all like i want to kill my opponent <laughs> uh, when i'm playing but within that there's you know there's well documented about like a thing with mark joyce and yeah. things like that but even when i played him if he played a good uh, shot tap the table because mm. he played a good shot it's nothing to do with him as a person mm. So like I think that's something I'll always have.
0: What's the, what's the deal with Mark, with you and Mark Joyce?
1: I just don't see eye to eye. There's been a bit of history in the past from previous. Uh, Did
0: it start when you were
1: kids or? Not really. He he seems to think that that I don't like him because he beat me a few times as a junior. If that was the case, there would be a lot of people I would didn't <laughs> like. <laughs> but that's not the case at all. I just don't particularly like him as a person. And there's a hundred and thirty-one players now on tour. You're not going to like every one of them, and he happens to be one that I don't particularly like. But Look, it is what it is and it's in the past now we move on we've actually spoken and had a few drinks since and tried to put it behind us so hopefully that's the end of
0: it ok um, you're 32 uh, next month February um, so you're still a young man but you've been a pro a long time actually now yeah. how do you sort of sum up your career at this point are you satisfied with what you achieved could you have done uh, more or is... I definitely feel like I should have done more by right now uh, very disappointed in
1: where I am at the minute, uh, with just three ranking events and one nine tournaments in total but it's not good enough for a thing for me but I don't mean that in any big headed way. Mm. I just feel like I've missed a few years where in my early twenties, sort of mid mid twenties, I was partying a bit too much and really enjoyed single life and mm-hmm. I was living on my own so my house turned into a bit of a party house and mm. didn't practice as much and at the time it didn't affect me on the table. It was very, very fortunate. Mm. But I think that had a knock on effect that a few years down the line when I got my head right and I was practicing mm. more karma come back yeah. and I started to go bad and I wasn't winning many matches always enough to stay in at 16 but never felt like I was ever threatening mm. and I think that's just me getting what I deserve for those few years where I abused it myself I abused the game mm. uh, I think that's sort of why I haven't won as much as I, have. I should have but there's a lot of players I would love to win nine tournaments sure. uh, but for me personally I want to go on and win a lot more I, I sort of set myself a target of if I could finish my playing career and have as many tournament wins as years on tour, right. then I'd be reasonably happy. Mm. Now, to, for me to do that, I would probably have to win a couple a season now to catch mm. up. But I still feel that's well within my grasp.
0: Mm. You've not yet won a triple crown event. That would be, I guess, a, an immediate ambition.
1: Yeah, it would. But look, it's, it's easy to say that. And mm. it? it's easy <laughs> to say I want to win a Worlds, I want to yeah. win a UK, I want to win the Masters. But it's just doesn't work like that. Mm. No, I try my very, very best in every tournament I play in, whether it's Gibraltar Open for eighteen grand a winner or the World Championships of mm. four two five. You no know, the financial side of it isn't what's important to me, although you need money to survive and mm. whatever. But I wanna win. I wanna win tournaments and I, I, I don't ever enter a tournament where I feel like I can't win. Mm. And uh, it just so happened up to this date that I haven't won one yet. Mm. But it doesn't mean that I've prepared badly. Mm. I've just maybe been outplayed in those tournaments and mm. I, all I can ever keep doing it's always something that sounds so boring to say but just keep working hard on the practice table which I feel like I really have done mm. and hopefully the, the results will turn and there's many many players myself included that might look back on their career and never won one mm. but it doesn't mean that I haven't tried hard enough to win it it's just maybe something that's not meant to be but I still feel like I've got the game to win all three
0: mm. Snooker, professional snooker in the circuit has changed quite dramatically in the time you've been professional how do you sort of see it at the moment how's the state of the game at the moment it's funny because Barry Hearn made a
1: statement whenever he first took over that it's going to get to the stage where players complain there's too much snooker. I'm nearly there. <laughs> uh, it's very, very hard. Obviously, me and my wife have just had another little girl she's only five months. I hate being away from home. I hate missing her grow up. It's my massive regret to do with Lauren. No, I don't see Lauren really at all. And Part of that's has to do with snooker and part of it's to do with me. I uh, wasn't a good father. Uh, and I think... I'd love to be able to spend more time at home, but the rewards now are so much greater. Mm. Uh, I think we've got 25 events on the calendar at the minute. You'll probably be able to tell me like close to 12 million in prize money or mm. something like that.
0: It's certainly gone up massively, hasn't it? Oh, it's,
1: it is. It's amazing what he's done in such a short space of time, but what I wonder is, within all that, is the quality dropping. Mm. Uh, I don't mean as a individual events, because the quality's still good in any event, but I mean as a whole, can players be as consistent as they possibly want to be mm. with so many events what Selby's done is astronomical mm. to be think, number one for five or six years yes. like in the current system that's unreal but in a way it's not because if you win the world you're going to be top two anyway and mm. uh, unless you fall apart the the rest of the two years but in an ideal world I'd love it to get to the stage where there's maybe a few tournaments less but the money in the events that are left for us to play in mm. goes up a bit and mm. uh, like tournaments that we play in the, in the grand scheme of things aren't going to make any difference to my ranking mm. they're not going to change my life in any way mm. but you feel like if you don't play in like are missing a step especially with that where I am in the rankings at the minute I need to be winning a lot of matches it is a bit too much I think at the minute mm. the traveling is grueling uh, Barry will say you know, tough tough <laughs> shit sort of thing mm. but it is very very hard and something I would love to change, yeah.
0: i mm. have had a couple of run-ins with Barry Hearn. What I'm going to put you on the spot here. What, what would you give him out of 10 for what he's done while he's been chairman? 10. Okay. Uh, I don't
1: think anyone could have done what Barry done. Mm. Uh, it's funny because the run-ins we've had, Barry's the first to ring me, mm. and he's laughing and oh, joking Oh, he loves it, the he? Phone. loves publicity. Like the big thing, <laughs> the fall of the UK Championships, mm. when I said that you nobody know, about shorten the shortening format and blah, blah, mm. blah he actually rang me the next day, he'd probably deny all knowledge of this, but he rang me the next day to say, Mark, please say more, because I love this, and I said to him, Barry, if you pay my fines, I'll say say whatever you want me to say, and he says, well, it wouldn't go that far, he says, but I love what you're doing, he says, any publicity is great, and he Mm. says, anything I ever say about you in the press, he says, it's not meant in any harm, it's just to Mm. get headlines, and that is Barry, he's Mm. all about headlines, and get people talking about the sport, Mm. and... Look, I run a charity event every year, Barry Hearns is the first person I ring, because I know that he's mm. going to be the first person to want to support it. Yeah. So, like, these run-ins that people talk about, yes, we had words, mm. but they're never really run-ins that we're going to fall over. He's actually a really nice guy to talk to. Mm. He's someone that, if you spoke to him long enough, he'd convince you that the blue sky was black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he's a great guy to be around, lots mm. of fun, and what he's done in snooker is just ridiculously mm. good.
0: Okay, and finally away from snooker I mean you say you've got a young family I'm sure that takes up a lot of time what, what are your other sort of hobbies I know you like a bit of golf don't you
1: honestly at the minute I've played very very little golf mm. I've just been so busy the calendar's been so busy uh, this this year or last year sorry now that we're in 18 but it's the least I've played golf ever really uh, since I was about 17 18 and it's just, because of the calendar so busy you, you don't feel like you're getting a big gap within that big gap I wanted to change cues after the World Championship, so I didn't take really any break afterwards. Mm. I got my new cue a few weeks later and then straight back at it to make sure I had plenty of hours with that cue. In general, like I'd like to take a big break in the summer, but because of what happened with the cue, I, I couldn't do that this year, so like, f- socialise with friends and have a few drinks and mm. stuff over the, over the summer when it is a bit quieter, but in general it's just lots of time at home and lots of practice, so mm. it sounds very, very boring. but. <laughs> It had to be done with a new queue, and Mm. it's something that may have to be done again this year, because I'm still not happy with my queue that I've got, but it may may change again in the summer. But yeah, it'll lend itself to just more and more play.
0: Mm. And finally, finally, um, you're glad are you that you discovered snooker at a young age, it's given you this this life you've got.
1: Absolutely, look, I'm I'm very, very fortunate that I can play the game that I love for a living. Mm. Am I a bit (laughs) envious of some other sports? Like people in my position in other sports would be financially secure, you no, know, their kids would be financially secure, their kids would probably be financially hmm. secure, and people think I'm being, you no, know, awkward saying this, but it's not all about the money. But it is in the, in the long term, you no. Know, like I look back at the game and I'll be happy with what I've done or disappointed with what I've not done. But what will make me happiest is knowing my family is secure. Sure. And at the minute, I'm nowhere near there. So yeah,
0: there's still lots of work to do. Okay, Mark, we wish you all the best for the rest of the season. Thank you very much, mate. Cheers, Mark. Sports Social Podcast Network.